You know, the one thing I think we could both agree on, Mike, is that we saw criminals with very violent pasts in their criminal history that had been involved in shootings, stabbings, rapes, murders. And then all of a sudden, years later, we're seeing them involved in financial crimes. Introducing The Protectors, inside criminal minds from around the world. Presented by the IAFCI, leaders in safeguarding consumers from fraud and scams for more than 50 years. And now your hosts, International President Mark Solomon and Chairman of the Board Michael Carroll. Hello everybody, this is Mike Carroll, International Chairman of the IAFCI, the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm with Mark Solomon, our new IAFCI International President. How you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great, Mike and uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, like I said, we both got to get used to these new titles, but we're so excited that the podcast is staying the same. And uh, you know, Mike, uh, I was looking at the other day, and we just hit our 5,000 unique listeners for the podcast. Uh, people are tuning in, they're subscribing, and that's, you know, that is awesome, because the more we get the word out there, the safer our communities are. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the podcast, Mark, especially with you and Modified Media putting this all together for us. They're doing an outstanding job. I'm learning a lot, not only about how to do a podcast, but from all our great guests we've had on in the past, you learn so much from them. They provide a lot of great information, prevention stuff relating to all the different types of frauds and scams that are out there. So, Mark, not only are we uh, getting new listeners to our podcast, but we're putting a word out about our organization, too, the International Association of Financial Crime Investigators. I put the podcast on my LinkedIn site. I got a lot of feedback from friends that didn't know that we had the podcast, but didn't know a lot about the IFCI either. So I think that this podcast helps us promote our organization and what we have to offer to the public about all the prevention for all these frauds and scams that are out there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And like I said, not only that, we're getting uh, subject matter experts reaching out to us instead of us tracking down uh, guests to come on. They're actually asking uh, to come on our podcast, so we're excited about it. And Mike, we have uh, actually a returning guest, somebody uh, that we met. Uh, well, I've known him for several years, but uh, we got to see him in person last year at our international conference in Maryland. And we had to get him back because of this very special topic today. So Mike, if you're ready to roll. I'm going to introduce our next guest. I am ready to roll, but I just want to mention one more thing. Out of the uh, 5,000 listeners, I checked another uh, spreadsheet on that, and 4,999 are friends of mine, and you had one. <laughs> All right. I'll take your word for it. It's probably true. All right, Mike. So our next guest was a solicitor in England for 13 years. He then relocated to the United States, passed a California bar, and joined the district attorney's office in 1993. For 22 years, Paul headed up the elder abuse unit at the San Diego District Attorney's Office. In 1999, he was uh, recognized as one of the top prosecutors of the year for his pioneering efforts to pursue justice on behalf of senior citizens. He's prosecuted over 750 felony cases of both physical, sexual, and emotional and financial elder abuse. And he's also prosecuted 10 murder cases, including one death penalty case. I know you'll recognize this name, so let's welcome him to the show once again, Mr. Paul Greenwood. Well, hello, Mark. Hello, Mike. It's uh, great to be with you again. And, and since we last met, I'm pleased to tell you that I'm now an officially a paid-up member of IAFCI. All right. All right. And a frequent listener, I'm sure, of our podcast. 
Oh, absolutely. You know, you, you do. You learn so much from each uh, perspective. And there's so many perspectives to go around. And, and that's what it takes. You've got to get uh, different people's perspectives at the table. And it helps all of us to understand how we can combat this escalating insidious crime of uh, financial exploitation. Hey, Paul, I had an opportunity to see you at our last international conference in National Harbor, Maryland, and you had a great presentation. I wanted to ask you just to start off, you know, federal law enforcement 29 years back as an analyst helping out with all the financial crimes that are going on out there. Do you see a big involvement of gangs with financial crimes throughout the country? Well, and, I, and I'm coming to you from having seen it within the, the San Diego County region, but obviously it mirrors what I believe is happening across the country. But certainly in the last 10 or so years, we became very concerned that organized crime gangs were now focusing attention on fleecing uh, Americans from their money in order to fund their own projects, their own uh, drug running projects or their uh, gun buying projects or more sinisterly, their terrorist projects. And yes, I, I do believe that they see this as a tremendous opportunity. Uh, they can't exactly go on crowdfunding and ask for um, people to support their criminal habits. So they do it by um, something they know very well, which is how to uh, take advantage of other people. And they're ruthless. And, and so they're applying the same techniques that they use in human trafficking and drug smuggling into uh, economic crimes. And Paul, you know, you, you bring up a great point here, too, with the, the financial motivation of, of some of these organized criminal groups. We all agree that violent crime is, is one of the most serious problems in our country and other countries. You know, uh, injury and death are the most serious crimes you could face. But I think people maybe don't see the connection between financial crimes and violent crimes. And, you know, what people don't realize is a lot of these violent crimes are motivated by the end game, which is getting money or getting finances? Well, that's certainly true in, in the field that I specialize in, which is prosecuting people who committed crimes against older adults in San Diego County. And, and California defines an older adult as anybody over the age of 65. And you know, Mark, the number one uh, profile that I always prosecuted almost week in and week out was the lazy unemployed, drug-addicted, alcohol-addicted, or gambling-addicted son who was mooching off his elderly mother. And it would start with finding ways to rip off elderly mother in order to feed the addiction. And typically, he would steal the jewelry. And then it escalates because once mother finds out that her precious jewelry, particularly the engagement ring, that her late husband had given her back in 1941 has been pawned at a local pawn shop, she confronts him. Well, you know what? how that ends up, Mark? It ends up with him in a fierce argument with him then either pushing her violently, smashing her in the face, or worse, and I've had this happen, getting a hammer and smashing her skull. Mm, good. You know, this is what we have got to figure out a way of getting this message across that unless we get tough with people who escalate these crimes, it could end up with 
them doing some act of physical violence against somebody else. Hey, Paul, can I ask you, not only, you know, family members abusing the elderly, their parents or other family members, but what about uh, caretakers? Have you ever had any cases related to that where caretakers abused the person they were supposed to help, not only abusing them, but financial ruins? Absolutely. I mean, one of the murder cases that I prosecuted to trial involved a caregiver. Unfortunately, my victim did everything wrong. He put an ad in the newspaper asking for a caregiver. And so this uh, defendant, uh, she applied. She persuaded him that she needed a place to live. So she started living there and, quote, taking care of him. Well, she was also stealing his checks. And so she ended up forging his checks. She was paying off her car loan. She was paying herself. And he eventually found out and he confronted her. She said, well, if you have me arrested, I'm going to end up in jail and you'll end up in a nursing home because the police won't let you stay here on your own. He fell for that argument. So he let her stay. But in the end, they got into more and more arguments about the fact that she'd stolen his money. Ended up with one day her tying him up, setting fire to his home, bashing him around the ear, and then ripping out all the telephones and driving off, leaving him tied up to a chair with the house almost on fire. I mean, he he managed to get free, but this guy was 97 years old, and um, he ended up eight weeks later in a rehab facility uh, dying from bronchial pneumonia because she'd broken his uh, left 11th rib. So you know, you see an escalation in so many of these cases. You can you can isolate that forgery of the checks and say, well, that's no big deal. But look what it ends up with. It could end up with a a murder conviction. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Mike, a comment to you. And, and you know, we both were in law enforcement for a long time. And you know, maybe not every violent crime is predicated on financial crimes, or is the motivation for it. But you know, the one thing I think we could both agree on, Mike, is that you know we saw criminals with very violent pasts in their criminal history had been involved in shootings, stabbings, rapes, murders. And then all of a sudden, years later, we're seeing them involved in financial crimes. And I was wondering, Mike, if you had an opinion as to why that happened. Well, I think these violent criminals thinking that they're not going to do any time if they get involved in financial crimes. You know, they think it's a probational offense. You know, they're not hurting anybody uh, physically, but, you know, financially, yes, they are. They're hurting a lot of people. But yeah, I think, it, you know, like I said, I think they're thinking more of the fact that, you know, financial crimes, they, they won't be doing uh, any jail time, or if they are, it's minimum jail time. And you've seen that today. I mean, with the no cash bail and certain counties where you need a certain amount of money lost to be charged with a felony and, and things like that. Yeah, and I and uh, you know Paul and Mike, uh, both of you. I, I just read a, a news article a little while ago, uh, incident in Oxon Hill, Maryland, uh, where it was a simple shoplifting, and a security guard confronted the woman, um, tried to stop her. She pulled out a gun and shot and killed the security officer, and she was shot and killed herself. But you know the point is here is that you know. Yeah, uh, maybe people don't take seriously shoplifting or nonviolent crimes, but they could just turn into something very bad very quickly. And it's because of that criminal background of that person. You know, a lot of times these things turn into something much more serious. 
if I could just add to that, I'm just going to give you one scheme that's out there right now. It's got a kind of a slang word. It's called cracking cards where individuals are being recruited to provide their debit card and PIN number or their bank account information. And then stolen checks are put into their account. The funds are withdrawn and it gets back to the ringleader, which a lot of them have criminal records. So if you get a couple of uh, individuals that allow checks to be put in their account, uh, you do two a week, you could probably make three, 4000 a week tax-free you know, without anybody getting hurt. So a lot of the violent criminals that are involved in gangs know about this, and that's where they're going. Absolutely. Yeah, i got to say, uh, Mark and Mike, you both raised some interesting points there that, you know, we, we've been talking about as prosecutors and ex-prosecutors uh, for several years now. You know, one of them is um, the fact that in these stores, you know, a lot of these uh, employees, when they see shoplifters, actively stealing from the shelves they're instructed not to do anything you know and you understand that and the liability of the stores that could be involved and i just had to share with you a personal story from two years ago you know i was in my local supermarket at the uh, deli uh, being served by the clerk and he looked up and he said to me uh, he didn't know me he didn't know my background he said you see those two guys and i looked around and they're at the beer uh, shelves he says, they're about to steal some beers. I said, how do you know that? He said, oh, they come in every other day and do the same. I said, what? He said, oh, yeah, they're regulars. And he says, look, one of them's got the backpack and the other one's going to put them in. And sure enough, within 10 seconds of him telling me that, it's exactly what I was watching. And the prosecutor side of me couldn't stop it. Um, I watched them. They ran towards me. Now, I'm not advocating this, and I shouldn't have done it because I got into big trouble with my wife and my kids. <laughs> uh -oh. But I tackled, I tackled the one guy who had the skateboard. And uh, the only good thing about it is I, I managed to get his skateboard off him, and he and his buddy ran out of the store. But to me, it, it just reinforced the fact that these uh, shoplifters know exactly what they're doing, and they know that in nine times out of ten, they can get away with it. And... As I say, I, I probably wouldn't do it again because next time it could be somebody pulling a gun, as you mentioned, Mark, yeah, yeah. Uh, out of a backpack and, and, and killing me. It's not worth it. But we've got to do more. And, and you know, I, we've just had a, a video surveillance system put into our house, outside our house. I am so impressed with the facial recognition software that comes with that system. And why don't we have stores putting more facial recognition software? So that when you get these regular repeat offenders coming in, at least we have an opportunity to specifically identify them and give that information to law enforcement. I agree with that, Paul. And maybe one step further, you know, they drive to that location. If they follow them out to the car, they get the plate number, have that plate number on file, you know, with cameras and things like that. If that vehicle shows up at another location, another store, you know that they're back. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm a great fan. And I know I get pushback from defense attorneys who say it's an invasion of our privacy, but I'm a great fan of having these cameras everywhere on street lamps, on all kinds of traffic lights or everywhere, you know, because it really does help. You know, you can't go anywhere in London without being picked up on one of these cameras. You know, I, I love watching some of these real life documentaries that can track the movements of people from one street to another. And, you know, that, that's a good point, Mike, because if we had more and more of those surveillance cameras positioned around, you know, we could, I think, do a better job of 
identifying and tracking the movements of some of these people. But we're going to get pushback all the time because it apparently is an invasion of our privacy, which I, I don't really understand. Paul, you know, um, before we move on, you, you brought up a point with the retailers and, and some of these businesses not reporting it. And obviously, we have a lot of retail investigators in our uh, IFCI association. And, and again, the loss prevention agents are following policy uh, sometimes. And, and some stores have great policies and some have that, like I said, no reporting, no interaction. Uh, uh, just before we got on here today, I was talking to our producer about a case 15 years ago where uh, a car full of merchandise uh, we arrested a sub- uh, several subjects for shoplifting, and we found stuff, two, 300 items from a diff- another store. We went up there, interviewed the store, and before we even had to explain anything, they said, oh, you're here about the shoplifters. And I said, yeah. And they're like, oh, yeah, we saw them steal it all. And like I said, they walked out the door, and nobody nobody made a, f- a phone call. So it's, uh, it is a problem. We're seeing that trend reversing, though. We're seeing a lot of retail stores that are taking such a big loss that they're beefing up their loss prevention, you know, following policies and procedures. So I think that's changing. But I wanted to talk to you, Paul, a little bit about the changes we're seeing here in the United States, and I'm sure it's occurring in other countries, too, where we're almost decriminalizing. Uh, Mike brought up a point where uh, if you do a shoplifting or a theft or a larceny under a certain dollar amount, it's not even prosecutable or, you know, they're not willing to bring charges against anyone. Do you see a problem with that, being a former prosecutor? Well, when I started out, Mark, as a prosecutor in 1993, as you mentioned, in California, the felony limit for a misdemeanor for theft was 400 bucks, and then uh, went up to $950. And that was something which the, the public voted for in a proposition in California. And I think many people who voted for it are now regretting that. But there is this general feeling that if the loss is, say, 500 bucks or less, that no one's going to do anything about it. Now, I'm just speaking to you as an individual ex-prosecutor, but I had the backing of my office, the San Diego DA's office on this. To me, the monetary value is secondary. What is important to me is the conduct involved. Because if today somebody's going to steal 400 bucks worth of something from a store and get away with it, Tomorrow, it could be 600. And then the next day, 800. Why do I say that? Because I think back to my childhood. Now, I'm sure Mike and Mark, you, you must have had the same issue. As a kid, we all did bad things. Okay, well, not necessarily really bad things, but we did things that were not appropriate. No comment on and that, Paul. No I, comment from me on no, that. What, what, <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And so, you know, what happened? I would do it until what? until I got caught, until I was held accountable. And then once I was held accountable, I changed that. And so, you know, that's what it's about. I think a lot of people mistake prosecution and accountability for being draconian and and for being uh, ultra uh, uh, aggressive. No, what we're trying to do in many cases is put people back on the right track. And so there were many times when I would prosecute even when there was no item stolen. I remember going after a guy who had gone into several elderly people's homes, tried to trick them into uh, a scam, and he failed. But I still prosecuted him, and I charged him with residential burglary every time. 
of going into a house with the intent to steal. Because even though nothing of value was stolen, his behavior was serious. And he was there prepared. He, he had the right conversation. And I knew that if I didn't hold him accountable, he would rip off somebody the next day. So I think we've got to engage more and more prosecutors, more and more law enforcement in that kind of uh, attitude. We've got to make the public more aware of the consequences of maybe the value that we place on a felony uh, prosecution. And I think ultimately, and this is where I think we're going, certainly in San Diego, where my um, DA, bless her heart, Summer Stefan, is calling for a team approach to combat what we call uh, organized retail crime. And so it, it takes the Chamber of Commerce, it takes individual stores, uh, corporation stores, it takes law enforcement, and it takes, I think, the surveillance companies who install the cameras. All of us need to get together around a table, every single county in America, and try to figure out ways to combat these crimes. And I'm not suggesting necessarily that we go gung-ho on every single uh, shoplifter. Sure. No, because some shoplifters are out there because of poverty, mental health illness, uh, homelessness. And we, we can recognize that. But if there are organized criminal gangs roaming around our states looking for easy targets, we've got to crack down on that. I agree. Hey, Paul, I agree with what you just said about getting them back on the right track. How is somebody going to get on the right track if they're going into a store, shoplifting, and walking out the door every day without being confronted? That's not getting them on the right track, at least if, if their person is arrested. Well, that's, that's true. And, and it may, it's really to find out what is driving them to do this. What, what type of products are they trying to steal? Are they reaching over the counter in a pharmacy to get the drug medications? You know, it's interesting. Now I go into more and more stores, and there's more and more stuff being locked up. Right. I was in a state recently where even the, the wine bottles were under lock and key. Uh, so it's interesting. Some stores are really taking it to, a, to another level, and maybe that's one thing that can be done uh, to combat this. But I, I, I think if we just simply say, oh, well, he only took $25, uh, we, we, there's nothing we can do. No, we need to understand what's going on in their lives. And maybe we can actually help divert them and put them into programs that can help. You know, one of the frustrating things about reducing some of these crimes from felonies to misdemeanors is that with misdemeanors, there's very little court-supervised programs. But when you get somebody convicted of a felony, there are more and more court programs available, including mental health treatment, drug treatment, and often what I would say to the parent of a defendant that I was prosecuting who would be upset with me for prosecuting them for a felony, say, well, hold on a minute. If your son goes through this court-ordered program and does it successfully for the next 18 months, maybe there's an opportunity for me to come back into court and ask the judge to reduce that felony conviction to a misdemeanor. We've got to offer incentives to defendants why they should get back on the right track. Uh, Paul, you're right. And you know, it brings up another topic that kind of feeds off of this decriminalizing or lessening the, the offenses um, is no cash bail. And listen, I, I was in law enforcement for 20 years, 
And, you know, there were instances where, yeah, listen, this person's not a danger to the community. They don't have much of a criminal history. They made a mistake. And, you know, we're not looking to penalize people by using the bond system, but but it's getting out of hand where violent criminals are repeatedly walking out in and out of the door to precincts or the police departments because of these policies, you know, and yes, you know, maybe there's, they're not violent crimes, but, you know, bond is meant to protect the citizens and to ensure that individual goes to court. But when you keep letting them out the door, no consequences. They don't have to pay a dollar. They could commit crimes and just roll out the door before the police officer or the detective is done writing their reports to commit more crimes. I mean, this has to stop. We need to be reasonable and fair yeah. with this, but we cannot uh, go overboard here where we're just catching, releasing criminals and they're just going back. Like I said, it doesn't send a good message to the criminal. It just says, hey, I'll make a quick stop at the police department and I'll keep committing my crimes because there's no consequence. You know, I mean, this revolving door policy, it's a real tough one. Um, I know that um, before I left the office, you know, we were, and this was before COVID, we were concerned about the pressure that was being put on judges to release, quote, non-violent people accused of crimes because of overcrowding in prisons. You add then the COVID concern, so you get even more incentives for judges to release quote, nonviolent uh, offenders because of this, the risk of uh, spreading the, the germs and everything. Um, but I think we do have to come back to the criteria of why do we have a cash bail system in place in the first place? As you say, it is, number one, public safety. Number two is this personal flight risk. What I would always look at, too, is what kind of support does this defendant have from the community? Did they come to court with parents, with a relative, with an employer? Did somebody speak up on their behalf? Did they say, this person can stay at my address? And so sometimes there would be absolutely good reasons why a person should be released on their own reconnaissance. But with certain conditions attached. And again, I think, uh, you know, the, the, what I call, the, it's called the pretrial bail review services. That program was decimated in our county that that needs to be beefed up and funded so we can actually send out people to check up to make sure that these folks are where they're supposed to be and then yank them back into court if, they, uh, if they're violating their bail uh, conditions. It's not an easy solution at all. And I think this is where prosecutors need to use their best efforts and not just focus on keeping people who've been charged in jail. Now, that's not the solution. We've got to be selective. And at times be willing to say, yeah, this person fits the criteria. I feel good about letting them out, but be careful about that. Yeah. Hey, Paul, you know, here in Illinois, the state legislature voted on a no-cash bail bill, even though 98 out of 100 states' attorneys thought it wasn't a good idea. There's been some modification to it, but uh, it's been put on hold. The uh, state Supreme Court's going to take a look at it. But, uh, you know, again, 98 out of 100 states' attorneys here county state's attorneys in Illinois said, no, this, this is not a good idea. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, that's going to be a critical case because if, uh, if that passes, um, you're going to see more and more states try to push for the same, uh, same law too. Again, this is where I think uh, we need to keep statistics. We need to bring to the attention of the legislature any cases, and they're beginning to surface in the media of where people who are out on their own reconnaissance have committed heinous crimes. 
And so let's keep a check on that too. Hey, Paul, like you mentioned about uh, retail crimes or shoplifting, you know, you see stories about uh, they got caught leaving the store with baby formula, you know, to feed their young kids, you know, and we know that it's for resale, right? I mean, there's a lot of money to be made in uh, retail crime. You know, you could sell it on social media, you go to the flea markets and sell it there, but there's a lot of money to be made in that. Certainly is. And, and, you know, one of the things that, again, um, our district attorney in San Diego, and I I mentioned her before, she is really a a premier. She's a prosecutor's prosecutor. You know, um, I've worked with her for many years, but she's calling for tougher laws because right now there's unregulated sale of stolen goods online. Um, And and you've mentioned the social media. We've got to figure out a way to, to regulate these sales. So it provides less an incentive for people to actually post online basically the uh, the earnings from their thefts. Right. Um, and that's just one small way that I think we can combat this rising uh, escalation of, of crime. And Paul, you, you, uh, I know Mike and you brought up social media and stuff like that. At least a very interesting point is these criminals engaged in financial crimes and also violent crimes, they have a tendency to post what they're doing. They glorify the crime that they're committing. And, you know, what does that say to our youngest generation? You know, and if we're not prosecuting these individuals, we're not taking them down, making them accountable for their actions, we're teaching the next generation that, hey, this is glorious, this is fun, this is this is how you succeed, and it, it isn't. This is how you ruin your life. People don't realize when they're doing this stuff, there's serious consequences of being a convicted felon. You don't have the right to carry a firearm. You don't have the right to vote anymore. And, and you know, when do we change that message for those young kids that are seeing this either in rap songs or seeing it uh, open on social media? Uh, I mean, how do we stop this? Well, you've raised a good point. And just this morning, I was uh, looking online at something that uh, our local public uh, broadcasting station aired, which was uh, this last week in a middle school in Encinitas, uh, which is on the coast here in San Diego County. Several career people went in to talk to the middle schoolers about their careers. One of them was my uh, former colleague, Scott Perello, who took over the program that I ran for 22 years. And he stood there as a prosecutor and showed these kids the effectiveness of a, a great career, but also to also show them that there's a choice in life. And, and it's never too early, is it, to, to try to teach our young, uh, young kids in schools that if you make a wrong choice or if you follow the wrong role model, you could end up in a whole heap of trouble. So I really am a great believer in starting early in education, getting law enforcement and prosecutors, public defenders into these schools and give them the reality of what lies ahead for them and to try to create in all these kids an example of a good role model versus a bad role model. Paul, that is awesome. That is something we definitely need to do to reach the young and let them know there's one direction you can go or the better direction you can go. And like you mentioned earlier, we do need to all get together. We need law enforcement. We need financial crime investigators, uh, retail investigators, uh, prosecutors, all on the same page, all working together to fight this type of crime because it's only going to get worse because 
and it happens. You know, it's, they walk into the store and they grab something and they go out the door and somebody confronts them. And next thing you know, that person who does confront them, you know, is hit over the head with a bottle or something more serious happens. And it, it just leads to more violence. Well, it does. And, and again, I, I mentioned this earlier, but I am such a fan of teamwork approach. We call them MDTs, multidisciplinary teams. We started um, in the 80s with uh, forming task forces for, for drug enforcement. We then started uh, looking at how we can use that same philosophy in gangs. We did it with child cases. We did it with domestic violence. We've done it with elder abuse. Now I think we should turn our attention as well to forming teams all over the country to fight the organized retail theft rings. And, and it can be done. And I think we should really bring in the public defenders. You know, we shouldn't always be in an adversarial position with people. We need to figure out problems and hear from public defenders because they represent some of these clients who are shoplifters. We need to hear from them as to what they think the solution is because they don't want to see their clients become repeat offenders either. So it takes all of us to come to the table and it's through podcasts like this that enable people to engage in conversation and, and think outside their own little boxes. You know, that's what we need to do. All of us need to be more creative. You know, um, people talk to me all the time about restorative justice and everything in me says, oh, I don't like the sound of that. But I, I mustn't automatically shut it off. I've got to think, OK, how does this work? Give me good examples of when it's going to work. How could it work with a repeat shoplifter? You know, and so let's keep open the channels of communication with one another and not be so diversive and come together with a real team solution on and how we can fix this problem. So, Paul, you brought up some great points. How do we fix this problem, though? You know, who's to blame? You know, we're not looking to point fingers at anybody. You know, law enforcement goes out there, works hard every day. Prosecutors do a great job. You know, where does this fault lie? Is it is it with... Uh, and again, I don't want to get political, but is it with the people that we elect a point that need to start working on changing these policies? Well, I, I think we start with um, the understanding that we're not here to point fingers, but we, this is what I learned uh, from building a team in the DA's office of different agencies coming together. And so we, we've done that in the past with gangs. We've done it with human trafficking, we've done it with domestic violence, we've done it with elder abuse. We need to do it with certainly organized retail theft rings. And we've got to bring together all these stores, uh, surveillance camera companies, uh, law enforcement, prosecutors, even bring in the public defenders because they have their own perspective. A and together, try to figure out ways in which we can work more together. Uh, clearly exchanging information, getting those video surveillance tapes to the right people early on, um, to have prosecutors understand that we shouldn't be focusing on monetary values as much as the conduct of the people. And I think we should also look at our laws. Are they effective enough? And for example, California, I know California gets a bad rap for being too liberal in so many ways, but we've got some good, good, solid crimes. Uh, for example, there's one that um, San Diego has been using, which uh, allows us in a retail theft ring to bring in the crimes that these rings have committed in other counties, besides the ones in San Diego County. So there are ways that we can build good rapport with other agencies and toughen our stance. Because ultimately, 
it's going to impact the consumer. The prices are going to go up and uh, more and more stores are going to go out of business. And that is something that none of us want to see. Hey, Paul, I'm, I agree 100% what you're saying, because a long, long time ago, I worked in uh, retail, and the markup on certain items like clothes and notions and things like that was like 50%. And I think one of the reasons, like you're saying, is because they got to cover the cost of retail fraud or theft just to make up that loss. Yeah, Mike, you're you're absolutely right. And like I said, these are some of the problems. Hey, Paul, I wanted to kind of just bring one more topic up here. And for our audience, we're here with uh, legendary prosecutor Paul Greenwood from San Diego District Attorney's Office. He's here with us once again, and we're talking about the topic of the crime that's going on uh, and some of the trends we're seeing throughout the U.S. and also other countries. So, Paul, I just wanted to, you brought up a good point about, you know, going after criminals and maybe it takes some creativity or maybe going back to the past. You know, I always think of Al Capone and, you know, all the crimes that he committed, violent crimes and things. But how law enforcement got him was going after finances and the financial aspects of his crimes. You know, we have a lot of robberies. We have a lot of violent criminal activity. You know, do we need to go back to that and start getting these criminals off the street because of the financial fraud that they're committing? Yes. I mean, I think, again, we can learn so much from what we used to do going after the drug barons and the major players in, in the drug courier industry. You know, we set up in the San Diego prosecutor's office a forfeiture unit uh, and worked very closely with the federal prosecutors on training prosecutors on how to forfeit the assets. Because, you know, criminals, they get the message. When you hit them hard with uh, seizing their fancy cars, their homes, everything else, you know, that, that really hits hard. And that's what we need to do. And we need to illustrate it, uh, get it in the media, show people that we're not afraid to go after these people. And um, we've done that in some respects with some of these scammers who are overseas. I know that the U.S. Postal Service has been working very closely with the Jamaican authorities on cracking down on some of these uh, big-time scammers and really going after their and seizing their assets. So that is definitely one way that we can make a dent on, on these uh, organized crime rings. Hey, Paul, I got to give kudos to our organization, the IFCI, because you were mentioning about getting the word out to the young. And one of the things we did, we came up with a uh, kind of a prevention uh, video and some prevention material on young kids giving up their debit card and PIN number. They're recruited on social media. Hey, you want to make some money? Throw me your debit card and, or mail me your debit card and PIN number or I'll come pick it up. I'm going to put some checks in your account and we'll split the proceeds. These kids not knowing that once they do that, they've committed a crime, first of all, but it screws up their credit. You know, now in the future, it's going to be hard for them to open up a bank account or get additional credit. So we are trying with our organization to reach out to the young too and let them know, don't be a fool. Don't give up your debit card and PIN number. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And once again, that brings us back to getting that message out to the students in the middle schools and the early stages of high school. Uh, we've got to have people out there. When I first came to the States in 91, uh, it was a big, you remember the, the D.A.R.E. program, the drugs? 
awareness program that every school, it seemed in San Diego, had a police officer come and talk about the dangers of getting into drugs. We've got to do the same with getting uh, into fraudulent crimes. And as you say, that that one um, is such a classic example of where sometimes students will get into it innocuously. It's just like with money mules with older adults getting sucked into this. And the consequences of that can be just horrendous for an older adult. Yeah, Paul, you're right on that. And like I said, you know, I I feel like recently there's been a disconnect with uh, law enforcement and the community coming together, you know, probably because of tensions and, and stuff over the last number of years. But the more law enforcement interacts in a positive manner with our children, with our communities, I think that's when you start, you know, helping those, our next generation realize you know, I don't want to go down that path like somebody else has. I, I want to stay on the good side of things. I want to be contribute to society. And, and hopefully in the same respect, they see police officers in a different light. Well, yeah. You know, when I, I, I did a short stint uh, prosecuting in the juvenile courts. And one of the great programs we did was twice a year, we worked with Juvenile Hall. And they opened up on a Saturday morning, Juvenile Hall, to the public, and they encouraged kids to come with their parents to walk through Juvenile Hall and to see the cells and to see the environment that they could end up in if they chose a life of crime. That really helped uh, a lot of kids stay away from criminal activity. And I think we should uh, really encourage those kinds of programs much more effectively, get law enforcement the juvenile system, probation officers, teachers, working together to bring this home to kids. Oh, Paul, I think that's a great idea. You know, I come up on one, too. You know, maybe you haven't watched that old episode of uh, Beretta where he tells them if you do the crime, you're going to do the time. Mm-hmm. Mike's showing his age again, Paul. I don't think uh, some of our <laughs> listeners know who that person was, old TV show. So. Oh, sorry. But anyway. <laughs> So, Paul, Mike, and I want to thank you once again for coming on to the show. Like I said, we value your opinion, your expertise, and insight on things. And like I said, this was a topic that was actually brought to us by one of our, li- our listeners and wanted to hear us talk about that. So when I heard uh, heard that, I said, we got to reach out to Paul and, and bring him on the show again. So thank you for what you do, what you continue to do. You know, uh, you are retired uh, from prosecuting, but you're still an active uh, participant in these issues and uh, work closely with the ARP Fraud Watch Network and uh, obviously with the IFCI as well. So thanks for being here. We wish you all the best and uh, we'll hopefully be talking to you again soon. Well, I hope so, Mark and Mike, and I I look forward to hopefully being with you for your national conference in, in Tampa later this year. And if there's one word I can just bring to your listeners again, it's, it's well, it's two words, building partnerships. That's what it's all about yeah. in the community uh, and to make a dent in this uh, retail theft crime. Yeah, Paul, I'll be looking forward to seeing you in uh, in Tampa this year. You know, I like to continue this conversation because you had a couple of great points about reaching our young, you know, and then partnership. Those are two great things that maybe, Mark, with the IFCI, maybe we could do a little collaboration and uh, put something together funny to say that Paul and I and AARP just wrapped up on a uh, pretty comprehensive uh, 
training session for prosecutors in law enforcement on uh, being able to successfully prosecute elder financial exploitation cases. So that's going to be, that'll be rolling out in Tampa and uh, we'll be out there and going to be heading out in different areas too, to do that training. So, so yeah, Paul, we're going to keep you busy. It sounds like over the next couple of years, you're not retired. So uh, get back to work and continue what you're doing. Thank you, Mark. Yeah. Um, I don't believe in the word retirement anymore. I, it's called refire, not retire. Nice. All right. So, hey, Mike, another great episode. You know, uh, we appreciate Paul coming on here. And again, thanks to our listeners. Like I said, over 5,000 strong now, just a little over a year. Please uh, pass the message along because we feel very passionate about uh, this topic and educating the public and preventing crime. Mark, another great guest, Paul Greenwood. He even tackled a guy when he's out shopping. You know, if he's ever in Chicago, if I go out shopping, I'm taking Paul with me. You know, I agree. But, uh, <laughs> I agree. He is awesome. What he does to protect our elderly, uh, he's just a great guy to uh, to know. You know, I'm I'm seeing a new superhero uh, being created. We'll have Paul Greenwood in a cape, and and like I said, uh, maybe Paul Greenwood for president. I like I like his message so. Well, Mike, that was a great episode. And like I said, some great insight from our friend Paul. And and like I said, you know, uh, covering several different topics when it comes to the changes we're seeing here in America and in other countries uh, about combating fraud, financial crimes, and even violent crimes. So we hope our audience loved it. Mike, any final thoughts? No, I think he talked about two very important topics. You know, he talked about uh, elder abuse. And then gangs getting involved in financial crimes in two different areas. I mean, we could have done a two-hour show, but, you know, I think he did a great job today, and we're really appreciative of him. Well, guys, uh, that's another episode down for the Protectors Podcast. Mike and I are so grateful to have you listening to us. Please, uh, if you haven't subscribed, you could go to any of your major podcast outlets and hit the subscribe button. We also want to hear from you, so you can go to our uh, website, www protectorspodcast.com or you could send us an email at ifciprotectorspodcast at gmail.com until next time this is Mark Solomon I'm signing off from Connecticut and this is Mike Carroll from Chicago thank you for listening thanks for listening to today's podcast remember as you join the fight to protect our citizens you're not alone With more than 6,500 members from around the world, the men and women of the IAFCI are standing together with you. To learn more or to join the IAFCI, please visit our website at www.iafci.org. The Protectors Podcast is produced by Modified Media and is available for free wherever you listen to podcasts. The hosts and guests' opinions are their own and do not reflect those of management, employers, or sponsors. Listeners are encouraged to contact law enforcement if they suspect being a victim of a crime.